Um, turn in your Bible to Acts 15. Uh, two things. Um, for people in the other room and at, and, uh, at home, if there's anybody watching, um, um, our, we had a, a little bit of a break-in this past week. Past, past week? Uh, and somebody stole our good camera. Um, sure. If you borrowed our camera, could you let us know? Because <laughs> we definitely think it's stolen. Um, so we, we, have, we had a previous camera that we're using. It's not as good. So for the folks over there and at home, I'm sorry. It's just this is the best that this camera will do. So sorry about that. Um, the, the second thing is um, you, you heard that Jeremiah has done a lot for us. He, he did a lot more than sit back in that booth, but one of the things we need to replace is people sitting in that booth. Um, if you look back there right now, there's Amy Berry and there's another one. Can you wave? That's my daughter, Ryan. She's 13. If she can do this, you can. And we need you to. She sat back there once to be trained, and now she's doing it this week. That is the level of expertise that is required. And if you're sitting there saying, yes, yeah, somebody should do that, you are the somebody. That, that is the person. Um, I know you don't want to sit back there on a Sunday morning. Nobody does. No one does. Well, we need you to do it once every four, six weeks. Uh, so if you would, please talk to Amy if you'd be willing to do it. Not you're excited about it, but you're willing to do it. And I'll tell you, it's easier than you think it is. And this is true of this job and any other. It is, it is a privilege to serve the people of God. And even if you're forgotten, often when you're forgotten, and people only recognize you when you forget to click a slide, <laughs> it's a privilege to serve the people of God. And so I would, I would just ask you to consider whether that might be a way that you can give away and to enter into serving the church. Thank you very much for considering it. That's my pitch, which I will hopefully not have to give again. All right, Acts 15, the first verse. We skipped part of Acts 11 because it kind of goes with this passage. In Acts 11, Peter reports for the first time his experience with Cornelius and these Gentile people. And if you remember the story, he, he preaches in Acts 10 to this household. And before he can even finish his sermon to these Gentiles, the Holy Spirit falls on them just like the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. And he says, God's clearly opened the pathway to the Gentiles. And so we've continued on, and we've seen stories with Paul and, and Barnabas, they're preaching and how they're seeing the same thing, and things are kind of coming to a head because this is presenting problems theologically. This is an uh, unexpected paradigm that the people outside of Israel would follow Israel's God and not have to become Israelite. This presents a kind of conflict. And in Acts 15, it comes to a head. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. 
When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you that because they're your words, they're words of power, infallible, piercing, and profitable for us. God, we pray that we would open our hands and receive from that gift. May our hearts be soft and our ears be open, and let it be your words that we hear and not mine. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. After this passage, uh, they write a letter um, and give these exact instructions to the, these new Gentile believers. And these are the instructions that will be passed on and down and through the church for ages to come. This is, it's, you may have this in your Bible, it's called the Council of Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem Council. This is the first church council. And if you don't know, church councils are a really big deal. It's how the church came together to make uh, serious theological decisions for a long time. Um, And this is the first one. You may have heard of the results of other councils like the Council of Nicaea because we have the Nicene Creed that eventually comes out of it, the Council of Chalcedon. This is the church putting their heads together and saying, we got to figure this out and we got to figure out what it is the church actually believes and teaches. the, The problem here is that they are standing on the precipice of something new. And what they're actually figuring out is they're not staying on the precipice. They are in the middle of the new thing. And they have to understand what is happening. For ages and ages and ages, 
If you wanted to follow Israel's God, you have to become an Israelite. So the first thing to recognize is that there's these group of of believers here. And they're putting their hand up and they're saying, look, this is what the scriptures say. This is what we've been instructed to do. It is necessary that we do this. And what you have to understand is they're not wrong. They're not totally wrong. They are reading the scripture in light of a centuries-long tradition, and they are rightly applying to the people in front of them what has happened before. And so in some respects, they are right that ordinarily this has been the way of things. That it's great, in other words, that these people are coming and responding to Israel's God, but now they need to do the thing that every other person has done, and they must be circumcised. And this conversation, this disagreement, will not go away. You can see it in the epistles of the New Testament that are going to follow. It's a major issue for Paul in the book of Galatians, in the book of Philippians. Everywhere they'll go, they'll wrestle with this question, how do you get these Gentile people marked out as covenant members if they don't have the sign of the covenant in their body? If this is God's word, shouldn't they be doing that? And what you see here in response is this incredible bit of churchly reasoning. There's this uh, famous uh, way, model of, of trying to make decisions as, as Christians, um, made famous by John Wesley. It's called the Wesley Quadrilateral, which is, if you're not, if you don't remember geometry, we're talking about squares. Um, and you can picture kind of a table, and he said there's these four pillars of decision-making as, as a Christian, um, where he talks about the Holy Spirit and tradition and Scripture. And here you can see these things in play, where they are doing this thing, they're watching what they're experiencing in the Holy Spirit. A major part of, of Peter's argument and Paul's argument is like, look, they're being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Can't you see it? But that's not all they're saying. You have in your Bible this, hopefully you can see this delineation that they cite scripture. They're citing from the book of Amos and and part of the book of Isaiah. And they could have cited a lot more, but they're going, okay, we've seen this with our eyes. We've experienced this. Now we need to go back and look at the scriptures. And maybe uh, what the experience is helping us see is something we've missed or overlooked in scripture. Yep, sure enough, the scripture is affirming what we are seeing. And they decide together that this is actually the movement and the trajectory of what God has done in all of scripture. And so putting all of these things together, they're saying, this must be what God is doing. Somehow, surprisingly, it is not required that a Gentile has to become an Israelite. They don't have to be circumcised. Look at what happened with Cornelius. Look at what happened in Paul's preaching. The Spirit falls on these people. And so for the first time, this door is opening wide and the the map completely opens up. They start to say, this then is the way forward to fulfill the command of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth. Because now the discussion has entirely changed. That God intends to save people entirely 
by grace through faith. Peter turns to his Jewish brethren and say, essentially, the law is good. But ultimately what the law is going to do in them is the same thing it does in us if we're honest and say we cannot fulfill the law. We cannot obey the law in its totality. Paul will write about this at length in the book of Romans. The law is good. It is from God. And yet, what does the law do but tell me I need help? I cannot rise to the level of Total obedience to God's commands. So if they already know that, if these Gentiles already know it, and we already know it, why do we have to do this to them if they've already learned the lesson and God has already supplied the medicine of the gospel? So the door flings wide to these Gentiles. And this will be a struggle in the church. Here's the first thing that you need to hear from this passage. Is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, includes far more people than you and I are ordinarily comfortable with. The comfort that they have in that moment is everything they have in this previous paradigm of entering in to the Israelite family of God. And what God intends to do is bigger than that. And when the way God works in the world is still this way, and we don't tend to think of it along the lines of Jew and Gentile, because I would wager upwards of 95% of this room is Gentile. So we don't even really think about this anymore. But we still draw lines around our social circles, around our demographics, our geographics, and we often run into places that have boundaries for us. We're just kind of instinctively recoil. And what we see time and again in both scripture and in church history is that God is moving in bigger ways amongst a bigger group of people than we are often comfortable with. And so what you have to do as a follower of Jesus is be ready to embrace the discomfort of where God wants to go. So if in your mind you have arranged your life to say, I don't want to hang out with people who live in trailer parks, then you will have a problem. Or if you say, I don't want to be friends with super wealthy people because I find them pretentious, I'm unfamiliar with the things that they find comfort in. You are going to have a problem because both the very poor and the very rich find their ways in to the Christian story. If you're coming into the Christian story and saying, I don't really want to be around certain kinds of sinners because their sin, frankly, repels me. I have some bad news for you. One, you are one of those sinners to somebody else. And two, Jesus loves those people and is going after them. So if you are going to follow Jesus, you better be ready to follow him into doors that you would prefer remain closed. And part of that is a recognition truly of ourselves. That I myself were it not for the grace of God, 
would be someone who is kept at arm's length and far off. And we are the people of the Lord's Prayer who, who regularly repeat the fact that we are people who have received forgiveness. How can we not be an agent of the forgiveness of God to others? We cannot be tight-fisted. This may be something that you need to enter into as a practice rather than a feeling. Who are the kinds of people that drive you crazy because of their commitments, their behaviors, their ideology? And before you maybe even are able to make a friend with them, maybe you ought to just put that list down. Draw a picture, or it, maybe you're picturing a person who fulfills all of those things, and pray, Lord Jesus, would you extend your mercy and your grace to this person? And would you send me to do it? And when you pray every day, for that person who you find repulsive, your heart begins to change. Because the plan of God is far bigger and more generous than you and I are naturally prepared to receive even now. Now on the other hand, there is this strange dynamic that presents itself within the text. Because the plan of God may be more, more inclusive and generous than we're prepared to accept, but it's also more demanding than we would possibly be inclined to believe. Because what the apostles don't say is, just come as you are and it's fine as you are. They, in fact, don't say you have to obey all of the, the fullness of the Torah. You don't have to change your dietary practices so that you can't make cheeseburgers or, or you don't have to give up bacon. They, they don't put any of that stuff on the list, but they do say that there are some things that you must do. You must refrain from doing. You must refrain from idolatry. You must refrain from food likely that is offered an idolatry. And you must refrain from sexual immorality. Now you and I, we hear the command to avoid idolatry and we're like, well, that's an easy one. Like I, I can, I think it should be fine. It should be simple to stay away from worshiping statues. That seems pretty simple. First, in the Mediterranean world, Idolatry is the normal practice of every single community. It is where people gather. It is where people feast. It is the way that the world is organized. It is an idolatrous culture. It is difficult. It is daring to look at Jesus and to turn away from millennia of cultural tradition. And say, I will now only have one God who is invisible. I cannot even point out to you what he would look like. You cannot see him. And I'm only going to worship this God, none of all of these other ones. Even that one who is the God of this city. I'll not worship that one. That is a revolutionary demand. 
There are no non-idolatrous people. These are the only ones. They are weirdos now because they cannot worship any other idols. And if we also understand what it is that idolatry is, it's an incredibly high demand. That you only worship the true God and you worship him rightly. And it's a test that you and I regularly fail. We tend to not build statues. We just scroll them in our hands. We may not have feasts to other deities. We just organize our budgets around them. We may not have idols with a temple. But if you look at our schedules, if you look at our priorities, if you look at our inclinations, they have an idol-shaped outline to them by nature, by inclination, and by habit. The command to avoid idolatry is, it is hard. And God is serious about it. And the church recognizes it. I want, to, I want to read just a little piece of the Westminster Catechism. It talks about the second command to not worship idols. And the question is, why does God command you to not worship? What is his reasons for prohibiting idolatry? It calls attention to the fact that God totally rules over us so that we belong to him. These words point out to his fervent eagerness to be worshipped correctly. And that he is angered and takes vengeance on all false worship. Which he sees as spiritual prostitution. He views breaking this commandment as equivalent to hating him. And threatens to punish those who break it for several generations. He also equates observing this commandment with loving him and keeping all his commandments. And promises mercy for many generations to those who do it. He hates idolatry, views it as spiritual prostitution. And if you look at where you might find idols, that should make you swallow hard. That is a high standard. They also <clears throat> prohibit sexual immorality. Now, the people today, sometimes, sometimes for legitimate reasons, cannot figure out why Christians are so obsessed with sex. And fair enough. There's, uh, we're far, far too free to feel like we would like to only talk about people's sexual sin and overlook things like hypocrisy, pride, slander, all of these things. Fair enough. <clears throat> However, right here in Acts 15, when the apostles are saying, hey, these are the ways that the law is getting dialed down and boiled down, sexual immorality is in the list. And if you read 1 Corinthians... These two issues, idolatry and sexual immorality, are again an issue that Paul has with these new churches. Why is sex so frequently focused on, not just in the church today, but in Scripture itself? Because sex is a big deal, that's why. 
The idea that sex is no big deal and is basically a vehicle for pleasure and meant to be engaged by whoever agrees to do it with one another demeans sex, cheapens it, and is the opposite of what the scriptures are going to tell you, which is that sex is really, really important. Because it involves, as Paul says, the intertangling of not just your body, but what goes on inside your body, your heart itself. And so Paul knows, the apostles know, that in a world that's full of idolatry like this ancient Mediterranean world, they also are living in a world that's incredibly sexualized. We think that our culture in 21st century America is like, wow, super sexually um, liberated, how, whatever that means, you should read about the ancient Mediterranean world. Like, we're, we are not at their level. There's stuff that is approved of in public and promoted in the ancient Mediterranean world that is criminal today. And in that context, an extremely sexually liberated culture, the apostles narrow down very tightly, this is what is required of you. And to be clear, the definition of sexual immorality in their mind, and in the mind of the text, is the same definition that they've had for thousands of years. The Torah is very clear in its teaching. Sex is for a married man and woman, and that's it. Every other item on the menu is forbidden. And they don't feel the need to change that or alter it or make that definition bigger. They're saying, this is the window. This is the only permissible context for sexuality. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to get rid of all of those idols and become a weirdo that way. And you have to get rid of all of this sexual liberation stuff and only live this way. That is really, really hard. And we tend to apply that to other people over there. All those people are sleeping around over there. Or we look at gay people and we say, gay people over there, they really got to clean up their stuff. But what the church has to freely and publicly acknowledge is sexual brokenness is a universal human experience. And people who are straight who appear otherwise to be good people, are often sexually immoral in their hearts, which Jesus has said very clearly counts. That when you live a life consumed by lust, and even if no one sees anything on the outside, you are an adult adulterer. How, what percentage of the room of our church Engages in pornography, pretty high number in all likelihood, if statistics bear out. And so the command to be sexually faithful is not for those people over there. It is invasive and right here in our own home. So you have these twin experiences. The plan of God is more generous and open and bigger than you could possibly imagine. And it is more demanding than you could ever hope or expect. It's both of these things at the same time. And if you meet Jesus, it is the only context in which that makes sense. 
This kind of standard is only possible and feasible if you have looked and seen Jesus. Because Jesus explains all of this. If you go back and read the Gospels and you look at Jesus' life, Jesus has so much room at the table for all the people that are rejected. All the people that the religious people would push away from and say, it's too repulsive to be near. Jesus brings clothes. He makes them his friends. He lets them touch him, which should make him unclean, but does not. And he says, these people are my friends, and I came for them. I'm a healer. They need to be healed. They're lost. I came to find them. This is the way that Jesus is. And Jesus is astonishingly holy. His teachings are not easy. Read the Sermon on the Mount sometime and tell me, actually, I think it's easy to follow Jesus. If you think it's easy to follow Jesus, you are not listening to Jesus. Because Jesus will come after your money. He'll come after your thoughts. He'll come after your affections of your heart. He'll come after all of these things and say, these are mine now, and you have to follow me as the king. And there's room at the table for everyone who doesn't look like you and fails at doing it. At the center of both of these things is the crucified and resurrected God. And so when we read Acts 15 and we are, re, we are reminded of who we are supposed to be, we have to be absolutely clear with one another how we are going to be this kind of people. The only way that we get to be this kind of people properly on mission and sent out and opening doors the way that we should is if we stick so close to Jesus. And what you ought to hear is that God loves the people who receive this command. And even though he knows that we as children will stumble along and obey them to varying degrees of success at varying times. The whole reason that we can continue on in this road that he's laid out is because we walk on the steady surface of his love. In 1 Corinthians, this crazy messed up church, you're reading their sins. When Paul is writing to them, he does not say, you're sexually immoral, you're idolatrous, and now you're out. What he says is, you're sexually immoral, you're idolatrous, and you need to come home. You need to repent. You need to come home. And that is still the way it is with Jesus. Because of what Peter says in the middle of his explanation, now we know that it is all meant to be a gift. He says, we, will be, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And if you are here today, you need to understand that God never intended to trade with you. He is not looking at the labor of your life and waiting for you to rise to the level of his approval but instead precedes your obedience 
with his love and his affection. So that your obedience does not win him over. It's the winsomeness of his love that wins you over. What God wants to give you first is everything. And then you, in the delight of his love, give him everything you have back. And what you are invited into then is the great dance of God's own life. He gives you everything. And you respond with everything that you have. He always intended to make it all about him. And he intends to make your life and mine all about him. So if you are here today and you're saying, Ooh, man, those four things, like, that's tough. I fall down on some of these fronts or all of them. God intends to be gracious to you. He wants to give you a gift. And he'll give it to you again and again and again if you just trust him. And if you're here today and you've come in like, you know what? I'm actually killing it. I'm doing great. People like me. I am, you know, I don't even do a lot of the things that this says. I really am more moral and better equipped than all these other people, then what you need to hear is what the scripture will tell you. It's not about you. You're, you're worse off than you think you are. And you're not meant to hear that and receive that as a word of judgment and condemnation. You're meant to receive the good news that this was never about you Anyway, so you can lay aside your pretension. You can ask God to examine you, to evaluate you, to convict you of sin. And he's not going to do it. So he can pick you up by the scruff of the neck and throw you out of the house. He opens his house to sinners like you. So just get over yourself and repent. Just get over yourself and your own self-evaluation, your self-certitude, your confidence in your own self. Get over yourself because it's all about him. You might as well just be completely honest with him and with yourself and with everybody else. This is meant to be a confessing community because we have already heard God's verdict on whatever it is we're about to tell him that we're confessing. What is the thing that you're terrified to say to other people? He's already known it. He's already heard it. And his response to you is very clear. This is my beloved and whom I'm well pleased the verdict that he rendered on Jesus is the verdict he chooses to deliver to you. Because it is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that throws open the doors that we thought we were locked out of forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. <clears throat> We thank you for what the, the church recognized at the Council of Jerusalem. We thank you, God, that the doors are flung wide open. And Father, we, when we're honest with ourselves, we do tremble at the commands that are laid out for us. We know that we fall short in our obedience. 
God, I, I pray that there would be a spirit of repentance and humility now and always in our midst. That we would freely acknowledge to one another and to you that we are sexually broken, that we are idolatrous, we're self-obsessed. God, that we, we love, we enjoy keeping people far away from you at times because of how different they are from us. God, I pray that you would, you would convict us truly. God, I pray that you would help us to come home to you. And Father, I pray that you would make us a joyful people, that we would somehow be both of these things, repentant and joyful. Because we've seen Jesus, because we've seen you at the middle of the story, because we know that you want to give even us the gift of God. Father, make our hearts soft to you. Help us to rejoice and to live a life of rejoicing. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that models this kind of life. That we wouldn't look at any portion of our social circles, the political map, the the sin spectrum, the geography of our place. And we would look at this whole valley and all of our neighbors Say, this is the place where God wants to go and deliver good news. Father, help us to be a people on move with you and to be open-handed and generous because you have been open-handed and generous with us. Father, we're so thankful for your mercy. Let us be a people soaking in it, receiving it constantly. And as you've given us everything, Father, help us to be a people that pushes everything back towards you in joyful response. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can hear, we have some kids who would like to come see you and some teachers who would like you to come see them. So if you have kids in Sunday school, uh, send at least one parent back to go get them. Everybody else stand up. We're going to respond to God's word in worship through song.